Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Amen. Good morning, church. Today's reading is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. At the end of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth in the territory of Benjamin, The word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to. And say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a pot that is boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, From the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshipping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them, whatever I command you, do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, 
its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. If this is your first time or you've not been here for a while, Today we are continuing our series on evangelism. It's titled, The Saints Ones. And essentially we are looking at different people that God called to do his work and what that means for you and I today in terms of evangelism. We've looked at the calls of Moses, of Samuel, of Isaiah, and today we are going to be looking at the call of the prophet Jeremiah. One of the things that happens when you become, I have two girls, they're six and four, year, four, year, four years old. When you become a parent or when your, your children become toddlers, is that you realize that your house is full of hazards. And so you start taking things out, trying to make the house safe. Your center table, of course, has to go. All your ornaments and decorations in the mud. But it's not always enough. And so very quickly, parents try to teach their children about consequences. For us, it meant, for example, that our first daughter, we kept telling her, don't go, don't play with the hot part of the water dispenser. But she refused. We kept telling her. She went to see for herself, so we allowed her. <laughs> and the first time she touched it was the last time. Because <laughs> she was born, she never went there again. And actually, we didn't have that problem with our second daughter because the first one became an evangelist. <laughs> she tells Captain and sister, don't go there. And hopefully, this is a lesson that we hope that they carry on throughout their life that actions have consequences. Because that's how life works. But when it comes to issues like, uh, like evangelism, though, we tend to think about action consequences in terms of Newton's third law of motion. Don't worry, it's not a quiz. <laughs> that's for every action that's an equal and opposite there. And so we're often discouraged because we are looking at what we can do, and it looks really small. And we're asking ourselves, what can it possibly accomplish. But there's a second way of looking at consequences. It's often referred to as the butterfly effect. And it's this idea that a small action in one location, it can be as small as a butterfly flapping its wings. That's where the, the word, the term comes from. A very small action can result in unprecedented, exponentially greater consequences in another location. The most famous historical example is most like probably the First World War, which happened between 1914 and 1918. And I know this is an oversimplification, but you can actually trace it back to the assassination of a guy called Archduke Franz Ferdinand. And what happened was that he was in a convoy, and his driver took a wrong turn. And so while he was trying to reverse, a, a terrorist happened to be on that street. So the guy walks up to him and kills him and his wife. And things just keep escalating from there. And at the end of the day, 23 million people lose their lives, all because a driver did not know the road. <laughs> Somebody say, thank God for Google Maps. <laughs> and the message of the gospel is like this. It's, it's intense of its impact. And we're going to see in, in this sermon, I've titled God of the Unlikely, that God uses, he specializes in using unlikely people. And unlikely means to accomplish unlikely, exponentially greater goals. I'm going to look at it under three headings. An unlikely messenger, an unlikely message, and an unlikely savior. The first one, an unlikely messenger. 
a bit of background. Jeremiah lived about 600 years before Christ in the southern kingdom of Judah. While the northern kingdom was, the kings were just really bad in terms of devotion to God. We had kings like Ahab, kings like Jeroboam. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, was the epitome of one step forward, two steps back. Sometimes they had kings that were really good, and other times they had kings that were just horrible. So around the time God calls Jeremiah, actually about 15 years before, the people of Judah had just come out from the reign of one of the worst kings in their history, a guy called Manasseh. And unfortunately, he rules for 55 years. And by the time he's done, everything is a mess. See what the Bible says about him. 2 Kings 21 from verse 3, it says, He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced divination, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. The person that comes after him, his son Ammon, is actually also terrible. He's so terrible that after two years, people conspire and kill him. And an eight-year-old called Josiah ascends to the throne. But surprisingly, Josiah, the Bible says he sets his heart to serve God, and he begins to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. But the problem is that it has been a while. Josiah is trying his best, but it has been 70 years by this time since the last good king, Manasseh's father. The people, there's an entire generation of people used to worshipping idols, an entire generation of people so wicked that the Bible describing them, Jeremiah 17 says, their sin is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablets of their hearts. It's a time of the deepest darkness. And what the people need is to see God again. They need the brightest of lights to rise and shine and push back on this darkness. In other words, the people need a prophet. But what kind of person does God choose for this? When we look at some of the people that God calls at critical times, and we've seen some of them in this series, there seems to be something about them that obviously sets them apart. And so when you hear that God has called them for a specific work, you're not surprised at all. Moses he was the only surviving male of his generation. He miraculously survived the massacre. He was trained 40 years in the house of Pharaoh. Of course, God was preparing him for something. Samuel, his mother was barren for a while. Already you know that child has to be a special child. You know, his mother is barren for a while. He is in the tabernacle from when he was weaned. He was mentored by the high priest. Of course, you're not surprised that God was preparing him for something. And so when it comes to Jeremiah, it's no surprise that Jeremiah... It's no surprise that Jeremiah, after, actually it turns out that there's nothing special about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is just a guy. And people had a hard, had a hard time reconciling this. They were like, a whole Jeremiah cannot be just ordinary. So Jewish tradition began to invent a backstory for Jeremiah. Some of them are hilarious and ridiculous. For example, that's a tradition that Jeremiah was born circumcised. <laughs> And it's not even funny enough. There's this other one that when Je on the day Jeremiah was born, he started talking. <laughs> and accused his mother of unfaithfulness. 
See the funniest part? His mother was surprised, not that the baby is talking, no. She was like, my baby, why are you telling me these things? <laughs> and he said, I'm not referring to you, mother. I'm actually referring to Jerusalem. <laughs> and it, it's funny, but we are prone to doing the same thing as well. We often think about evangelism through the lens of gifting. Surely it's only for people that have been specially set apart, people that have been specially gifted and equipped for it. Talking about gifted people, I remember someone that I know who, he went to a store to buy a pair of scissors. And while he was in the queue waiting to pay, he's behind one guy that had an afro. And they start talking about her. And somehow, the conversation diverts. And by the time they get to the counter, I'm not joking, this is a true story. Might have been a long queue, but he had led this guy to Christ. I'm like, that's the kind of person God wants to use. He's obviously gifted for evangelism. Certainly not me. I cannot compete with that. But we we'll see from the story of Jeremiah that in such extraordinary times, it's to an ordinary person that the word of the Lord comes. God says to him, you are the one that I've chosen. And he's saying to us, it's you. Yes, there's nothing special about you that you can see, but actually my eye has been on you for a long, long time. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. And what does God want to do with Jeremiah? He says, I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. And of course, we are relieved. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. I'm not a pastor. I'm not in vocational ministry. Surely this does not apply to me. But hold on. What prophets do at its core is to declare God's word. And God has called us to preach the good news about his word, Jesus. In fact, the Bible actually says in Revelation 19 verse 10 that the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so to be a Christian, in a sense, is to be set apart for a form of prophetic ministry. But we need to pause a bit because I need to say something about what God tells Jeremiah. If God is the one that forms children in the womb, then it means that regardless of the circumstances of your birth, you are not an accident. It doesn't matter what those circumstances are. It doesn't matter whether your parents wanted you or not. You are not an accident. But it doesn't stop there. If God knows people before he forms them, then it means that your life is not random. It could look random to yes, but God knows how all the pieces fit together, and his plan, if you're a Christian, is to work everything together for his glory and your good. Yeah. I thought I'll hear a louder amen. Yeah. How does Jeremiah respond to what God says? He reacts how I would respond, or how somebody here may do. Jeremiah says, alas, sovereign God. The ESV says, he says, ah, God. Ah, Lord God. I don't know how to speak. I'm too young. He's not a humble brag. And keyboardists, they are very notorious for this. They, they never ever admit that they can play. Until you're, you see them play, that you're surprised. That's not exactly what, that's not what Jeremiah is doing here. Jeremiah is acutely aware of his limitations. You see, Jeremiah lived in a culture where what granted you access to, to participate in public discussion, what qualified you to speak was your age. And so according to tradition, he's a, he's a teenager or in his early 20s around this time. And so essentially he's saying, I am not someone worth listening to. I don't know enough to share the gospel. 
Or maybe what we do is give what I call a soft no to God's call to evangelism. I am too young implies, ah, God, if only I were older, we forerunner. And this is how I, this is how we silence our consciences. God is not a no to sharing the gospel. It's a not yet. I'm busy trying to raise a family, trying to run a business, trying to build my career, trying to sort myself out. Maybe at some point in the future, I'll be in the right space where I can do this. But what happens is that we just get really, really, really good at not sharing the gospel. And Jeremiah doesn't voice this last objection, but we know from verse 1 that he's from a priestly family. So his life is already, in a sense, dedicated to God. He might already have started doing these priestly duties. And he doesn't complain about that, so they were probably within his comfort zone. And so I say, I'm fine with giving. I'm fine with showing God's love to unbelievers. I'm fine with serving. In fact, church has actually told me, you serve too much. You need to reduce what you're serving. But this one of speaking for God, this one of sharing the gospel. Ah, Lord God. Alas, sovereign God. How does God respond to Jeremiah? God tells him, even though. Verse 7. And the Lord said, do not say that I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. You must go. God doesn't give Jeremiah and us the option of refusing. Yes, you feel inadequate. Yes, now is a good time. Yes, you're already working for God. But even though, you must go. Why? Because people will not come into God's kingdom if the gospel is not preached to them. Romans 10, 14, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? You must go. But the verse, thank God, does not end that you must go. God also tells him, do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. And if you are a Jew, you recognize something familiar about these, verse, about these words, that God had given the same promise to different people he called, that he told Moses in Exodus, I will be with you. He told Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. But you know who else receives this promise? Jesus gives you and I the same promise as well. And I can see the wheels slowly turning in Jeremiah's head. And I hope something clicks in my heart and in your heart today that if I too am receiving this promise, then perhaps it's not about the sent ones as much as it is about the sending one. That perhaps it's not about being a great man as much as it is about a great God. That perhaps even there are no great men of God but only men of a great God. Paul puts it this way, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Yes, you have all these limitations, but God is with you. And so Jeremiah accepts the call. And God begins to reveal things to him. But we will see that it's not just the messenger that is unlikely. The message as well is also unlikely. My second point there are three things we see about the message of God. It has an unlikely appearance. It has an unlikable content and an unlikely effect. God shows two, Jeremiah two visions. In verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. 
Verse 13, the word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north. I answered. I'm going to look at both visions very soon, but can we just agree that these visions are somehow? <laughs> somehow. A boiling pot, as in. <laughs> and I think that is one of the first things we need to come to terms with. That the message of God, the message of the gospel will always be weird on some level. And guys, I believe the gospel is logical and it's beautiful. But like Paul said, people will view the message of the cross as foolishness. Are there people that preach in a foolish way and say all kinds of ridiculous stuff? Of course. But in Acts chapter 17, Paul preaches a model sermon in Athens. It is articulate, it is winsome, it is culturally relevant. And what happens? Verse 32 of Acts 17. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. What others said, we'll hear you again about this. The response is mid at best. <laughs> and so I tell myself, rather than deal with the weirdness, it's easier to apply close-up. It's easier to keep quiet. Keep quiet, close-up. But <laughs> 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 well, the irony is that many times, our fears are even unfounded. What we think is going to happen doesn't actually happen. A few years ago, I think it was in 2017, and I can say this because God has forgiven me. <laughs> We're having LQC. LQC is Lagos Christians Christianity. It's an outreach event of City Church that is targeted towards skeptics of Christianity. And we're giving flyers to share, and I gave them to my, my friends and neighbors. But I just felt a type of way sharing them at work. And so the event came and went. I didn't share them. And one day I was taking things out of my bag, and for some reason the flyer came out, and one of my colleagues stopped to talk to me about something, and he saw the flyer. And he picked it up. People, one of the persons I wanted to invite, but I couldn't. And he picked it up and looked at it and said, This sounds really interesting. I'd love to come for this. Remind me when the time is closed. It's closed. <laughs> and I said, um, <laughs> Actually, um, I was just shallying. But he asked me, Why did you not invite me? And I don't have an answer. I think at the heart of our reluctance to preach the gospel in some spaces is that we want to be perceived by others in a certain way. We're obsessed with this idea of being a soji person. We want to be a cool Christian, whatever cool means, in wherever we find ourselves. We don't want to be that type of Christians. And so we just keep quiet and go under the radar. But in John 12, we see what is for me one of the saddest and most convicting passages in the Bible. It says that some people believed in Jesus but could not confess him publicly because, verse 43, when push came to shove, they cared more for human approval than for God's glory. There's a word for this. It's called idolatry. Emmanuel preached about this a few weeks ago in our last series. The sermon is titled, Dethroning False Gods. Please listen to it. And he told us that the idols of our hearts end up taking from us and diminishing us. And when in verse 17b, God tells Jeremiah, do not be terrified of them or I will terrify you before them, I think the lesson for us is that chasing the idol of approval will end in tears. That the validation we are so desperate for will be to us like drinking salt water. It will just make us testier and testier until it kills us. 
But it doesn't always happen this way that we're worried for nothing. That's not what happened in Jeremiah's case. And maybe not for some of us. God tells Jeremiah the effect of the words he's going to speak. Verse 10. See today, I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Why is there so much violence? To understand, you need to go back again to the context Jeremiah ministered in. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, this number is important. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, the Bible says in 2 Kings 22 that something important happens. Verse 8. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Now in verse 1 of Jeremiah, you see chapter 1, you see that he was called in the 13th year. So this means of King Josiah, this means that as at the time God was calling Jeremiah, the book of the law was missing. And the tragedy was that people just went on. They were doing all this spiritual activity. Jeremiah was from a priestly family. But nobody knew exactly what God had said about how he wanted to be served. And so they began to invent their ideas about God. They began to mix and match. We don't have time to read this, but in 2 Kings 23, we see that articles for Baal and Asherah had been placed in the temple. There are even quarters for male prostitutes right in the temple. It had become an issue of my truth, and your truths can be different, but they are both valid, and they can coexist. I remember this has been going on for 70 years. For many people, this is all they know. This is their culture, their way of life. And so for the true worship of God to be restored, what needed to happen was uprooting, tearing down, destroying, and overturning. This is what the message of the gospel does. It uproots so that it can build up, can plant. It tears down so that it can build up. It is first bad news, really bad news, before it can be good news. The gospel is bad news to our self-centeredness and autonomy. It's bad news to our self-righteousness. It's bad news to all the ways that we have trusted in created things rather than the creator for our hope and our happiness, our significance and security. But what this means is that people will not always like the message of the gospel. In fact, they will hate it. There's an evil proverb. There's an evil proverb that says, when an oracle becomes too demanding, we will show it the piece of wood it was carved from. Evoquenu. <laughs> People are fine with Jesus as a means to an end. They are fine with Jesus as a part of their lives. But to say that God demands that we leave everything, all parts of our lives, under his control, that we should trust him alone, they will not take it. And so Jeremiah faces intense persecution for this. In chapter 11, his village people plan to kill him. In chapter 20, he is beaten up. In chapter 38, he's arrested and thrown into a well. And many of us will not face this. Many of us seated here will not face this type of persecution. But there's something else Jeremiah faced that we will face, we, we may face, and some of us are actually facing this right now, and that is ridicule. In chapter 20, Jeremiah speaks God's word to a priest called Pasho and tells him that God has changed his name from Pasho, which means fruitful, Two, terror on every side. And you know what happens? 
people start calling Jeremiah himself terror on every side. Jeremiah became a meme. <laughs> In chapter 36, there's a new king called Joachim, and God tells Jeremiah, every single word I have told you to, I have spoken to you from the time of Josiah, write it down in a scroll and send to the king. Maybe he will listen. And I can imagine that Jeremiah is hopeful. But what happens? As they are reading the scroll, the king is cutting it up and throwing it into the fire. In effect, he was sending a message to Jeremiah that, Jeremiah, as far as I'm concerned, your entire life's work is completely absolutely and totally useless. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat it. There's sometimes ridicule that happens to us because of the gospel. Snide comments, being excluded from things. Some of us deal with this on a daily basis. It can be a lonely path. And many times they are very casual about you. We just tell people to chest it. What is there? Why should you care about how people um, think about you? But we see that Jeremiah feels this very deeply. See what he says in chapter 20, verse 7. He says, Oh Lord, you have deceived me. And I was deceived. <laughs> I have become a laughing stock all the day. Everyone mocks me. He entered, he pained the guy well. See this one, verse 18. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and to end my days in shame? But somehow, Jeremiah is able to persevere. He's able to continue preaching the gospel. And there are lessons for us here. What do we do in times like this? First of all, Jeremiah takes it to God in prayer. But also, he says in verse 11, But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. Jeremiah remembers the promise of God. That God had told him in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 19 that they will fight against you but will not overcome you. For I am with you and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. And this is exactly how we find strength to move forward when we are discouraged by ridicule. We remember the word of God. That Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. That he told us in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. The third thing we see about the message is that it has, the message of God is that it has an unlikely effect. This is where it gets exciting. What does the vision of the almond branch mean? Verse 12. You have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. What's the relationship between God watching his word and a tree? So there's a bit of a word of wordplay going on in Hebrew. The, the word for almond and the word for tree sounded alike. But also, and actually because of the way they sounded, the almond tree was known as the watcher tree. Because it was the first tree that bloomed in spring to show that spring was coming. In other words, as long as there was an almond tree in bloom, it didn't matter what the weather looked like. It did not matter whether no other tree had leaves. The almond tree was a guarantee that spring was coming. And this is the key to perseverance and boldness in evangelism, that God is watching over his word to bring it to pass. In other words, salvation ultimately does not depend on you, but it depends on God. Paul puts this way, 
I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God that gave the increase. And this is such an encouragement because it means that the success of evangelism is not measured by the response of the person you preach to, but by the act of preaching itself. God only calls us to do our part and leave his own part to him. Why? Because he's watching over his word to bring it to pass. It doesn't always look like that. Jeremiah goes ahead and preaches and preaches and people do not repent. His ministry seems to have ended in apparent failure. He himself is carried off as an exile. But almost 70 years later, the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9 verse 2, that in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years according to the word of who? Of God to who? Jeremiah, the prophet. Must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And Daniel begins to pray. And exactly at the time that God told Jeremiah and he declared, it happens. Why? Because God was watching over his word to bring it to pass. And God fulfills his, words in, his word in ways that are beyond our widest dreams. There was once a young girl in Ghana, and this is a true story. She was trying to get into school, and at the interview, the teacher that was in the interview told her, if you want to get into this school, you know what to do. And she said, excuse me, sir, I don't know what to do. And <laughs> As he said, you have to be my girlfriend. And she said, I'm sorry, I can't do that because I'm a Christian. And he said, ah, I'm also a Christian too. I said, so let us behave like Christians. And so they went back and forth, back and forth, and she eventually preached the gospel to him and gave him a tract. As far as she knew, that was the end of it. But someone was watching over that word to bring it to pass. Two weeks later, he was listening to music, and they reminded him of the tract, and he went and brought it out for where he dumped it, and he read it, and he was convicted, and he came to faith in Christ. But that's still not the end of the story. That guy was someone called Reverend Dr. Mike Oye. And he goes on to be mightily, mightily, mightily used by God in the revival in Nigeria in the 1970s. He mentors people like Pastor Kumi and countless others. He preaches the gospel and then my father becomes a Christian. And you can actually trace the salvation of millions of people as a direct and indirect fruit of his ministry. The photo there is of him preaching during my wedding. And here's why I chose this specific photo. That's a very... That's a very real sense that we're listening to this sermon today because the girl in 1962 started from where she was. We've heard a lot in this series about evangelism, about how to evangelize, but today I'm here to ask us to dream together. What could God do with us and the word he has given us to share? What could God do with city church in the city of Lagos if all of, if all of us began to preach the gospel? So many times, sermons on evangelism end with piling on the guilt, piling on the guilt, and of course, the song of response must be, must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior soul? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? And guys, don't get me wrong, there's a place for that. We need to be reminded of that. But I think evangelism is primarily an invitation to be part of what God is doing all around us. 
It's a call to adventure. Our God is always working. He has all these plans in motion and he invites you and I to be a small part of the great things that he's doing. Yes, inviting someone to church may not look like much. Yes, you tried to preach and you stammered and forgot what you planned to say. Yes, the person you preached to might have even hissed and walked away. But God is watching over that word to fulfill it and he can achieve far more than you ever dreamed. Earlier, I talked in, at the beginning of the sermon, I talked about someone who went to the store to buy a pair of scissors and ended up, ended up leading that person to Christ. I never saw the guy again, but before they parted ways, the guy, this new Christian, told him, you know, I'd actually been contemplating suicide for quite a while. But now I have a reason to live. The people we live in, meet in life, brothers and sisters, are not random. The people that God has placed in our path, our neighbors, our colleagues, our friends, are not random. God has actually orchestrated our paths to cross, and he calls us to be part of what he's doing. And if only we can trust him and share the gospel, in the same way he used a little boy's lunch to feed 5,000 people, God can use you and I to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews the city of Lagos. And who knows, maybe I won't still take it too small. But if it all depends on God, if salvation truly belongs to God, then it means that we must be people of prayer. Daniel, after Daniel read the prophecy of Jeremiah, he did not just fold his hands and say, oh, God will bring the word to pass. The Bible says in Daniel 9 verse 3, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. We must spend time crying to God to do what only he can do. That God will open eyes blinded by sin. That God will break hearts hardened by sin. Yes, you're sad that your parents are not Christians. Your spouse is not a Christian. Your, your friends are not Christians. Your siblings are not Christians. But maybe what you need to do is like Daniel. Spend time in the place of prayer. Seeking the face of the Lord with prayer and pleas for mercies with fasting. Here's another thing we need to be doing. We need to be spending time praying for the Sunday service. As the word of God is preached, as the gospel is preached, that God will save and transform lives. And there's a prayer meeting on Sunday, on Sundays between 8.15 and 8.45 here that people are, are crying out to God. I want to invite you to join them to say to God, God, today, fulfill your word and bring it to pass. God, today, save people and bring them to repentance. My brothers and sisters, people will not be saved here if only Christians are coming to service. Can I challenge us to commit to inviting people over the next month? Can be just as, as little as two people. Inviting them to service. Keep inviting them. All the while trusting God and praying. It may not look like much. But remember, God specializes in, uses the unlikely, in using the unlikely to achieve the unlikely. It takes me to my final point. An unlikely savior. Jeremiah's second vision is a vision of a boiling pot that is tilted from the north. And God tells him that this is the pot of his wrath that's about to pour on Judah because of their wickedness. And the fact that the pot was tilting meant that it was about to happen. 
We are told that God calls Jeremiah in the 13th year of King Josiah. But Josiah goes on to rule for another 18 years. And the judgment does not come. Why? Because of Josiah's righteousness. It's almost as if he's able to pause the wrath of God during his lifetime. But it was not enough. Why? Because the king, no matter how righteous he was, was eventually going to die. And all it took was for just one king to bring them back to square one. And that's what happens. The next kings after Josiah are just horrible. But God sends a message of hope through Jeremiah in chapter 23. He says, verse 5, The days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And I'm sure Jeremiah begins to hope. But the kings keep getting worse and worse. It looks like the word of God has failed. But God was watching over his word to perform it. And in the fullness of time, Jesus of Nazareth, from the line of David, appeared on the scene. He's not what people expected. They wanted a political savior, but he came to save them from something worse. Jesus lives a perfect life on earth, but unlike King Josiah, whose righteousness made him escape the judgment of God, Jesus, even though he had a better righteousness, did not escape the judgment of God, but he submitted to it. On the cross, the boiling pot of God's wrath that was tilting towards us was tilted back on Jesus. He died the death that we deserve. But why King Josiah's death meant that Judah went back to their sin? The Bible says that King Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Because Jesus did not say dead. The Bible says God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. And he sends us out to announce the good news that anyone that believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. Because somehow in an unlikely way, the death of Jesus has become the death of death. But before God sends us out, there's something else he does. He empowers the people he sends to deliver that message. Verse 9, then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. There's something that the touch of God does to a person. It transforms the person, transforms the person and sends him out on mission. At some point, Jeremiah wants to stop the work of God, but there's still something inside him, pushing him, propelling him forward. He said, if I say I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I pray that today someone will receive this touch from God. And in all the places that you have kept quiet, in all the places that you have kept it in, you will go back and share the gospel with boldness. Because, guys, it's not enough to know the gospel. We need the power of God. We need this touch from God. And the Bible also calls the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's not a one-off. It's something that we need to receive over and over, over and over, day after day, if we are to fulfill the mission of God. How do we receive it? Can we rise to our feet? John chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried. 
If any man tests, if any man tests, if any man tests, let him come unto me. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. If any man tests, let him come. All you need to receive these thoughts is a desire. All you need to receive these thoughts is to say, God, I want you to fill me. I want to receive these thoughts. I am desperate for you. I am thirsty. Some of us are drying our spirits. We feel a sense of drying. We need to ask God to revive us again. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.